Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. I want to see Bill Robinson versus James Bond. What's a man with a laser watch? What's a man with a golden gun? Can't you see? All his history is killing me. My left foot's strong and my right foot's fast. I know it's hard to grasp. Gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying art form. I look at tap dance philosophy two ways. One is the philosophy of tap dance. And the other is philosophy through tap dance. I'm very interested in tap dance and, for me, viewing the world through the lens of tap dance makes it more interesting. History and philosophy are hard to digest, but I've found that they are easier to comprehend when they are tethered to something that I am interested in. Something to keep me anchored and focused. For me, that anchor is tap dance. And you're going to need an anchor to keep you from getting blown away by today's episode, titled, The Structure of Tap Dance Revolutions. Today, I'm not talking about ye old revolutions. I'm not talking about the bloody and inevitable revolution between the the proletary tap and their rise against the oppressive tap shoe joarzee. I'm not talking about the Tap Dance Judgment Day, where Tapman and the K360 crew battle the mechanized, floating, disembodied head of John Lithgow as the Reverend from Footloose over the fate of humanity's right to dance. No, I'm talking about something much more important. I'm talking about revolutions in science. The term paradigm shift has become a joke in modernity. There's a thread on Reddit regarding a pair of dimes on the shift key of a computer keyboard. CNBC.com lists it as a hated business term used by business people who want to sound visionary or aspirational. There's even an episode of The Simpsons where I first heard the word as a kiddo where a staff writer for the Itchy and Scratchy show questions the logic of one of the studio executives by saying, Excuse me, but proactive and paradigm? Aren't these just buzzwords that dumb people use to sound important? And they fired him on the spot. The joke is that the people who use words like paradigm and paradigm shift don't actually know what they mean and are only trying to sound smart without actually being smart. And that's too bad because the term paradigm shift is an incredibly useful, some would say, revolutionary way to describe, oh, I don't know, the history of science, and also tap dance. So what is a paradigm? Well, a paradigm is simply an overarching model, a big picture kind of idea that comes complete with accepted rules, like uh, up isn't down, and uh, water is wet, and All books burn at Fahrenheit 451. 
you know, stuff you can depend on to remain constant so that you can get on with your research without having to worry about them. A paradigm shift occurs when newly discovered data begins to contradict the accepted rules and no longer makes sense within the paradigmatic model of understanding. Thus, this paradigm becomes outdated and must be replaced with an updated one where the new data makes sense within it. One of the most famous examples of a paradigm shift is that of a switch from the Ptolemaic model of geocentrism, i.e. that Earth is the center of the universe, to that of the Copernican model of heliocentrism, where the sun is the center of the universe, which was published in 1543 by Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in his groundbreaking work on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres. And that sounds simple enough, right? Well, turns out that is not always the case. Imagine telling someone that water isn't wet anymore. And tell me how they look at you. Heck, the Catholic Church fought back against the Copernican theory for 400 years and are just now getting over the idea that they are not the center of the universe. Please send all angry letters to Brill Barrett, care of mad... <clears throat> Anyways. One paradigm that we tend to take for granted is the idea that everything evolves along a linear path. Take the common, though oft-disputed, story of the origin of tap dance, that black and Irish residents living in northern urban slums in the mid-19th century shared and absorbed each other's dance steps, creating a hybridized form of percussive dance, which gelled into a sort of proto-tap through minstrelsy and vaudeville in the late 1800s, later becoming the national dance of America through Broadway in the 1930s and Hollywood in the 1940s. Then in the 1990s, receiving a reinvigoration by bringing the noise, bringing the funk. Another example is the graded system by which many a tap dancer has learned the basics of tap dance. An instructor applies to their students a tried-and-true graded syllabus of terminology, technique, and traditional routines meant to increase the dancer's skill gradually and systematically over a period of time, testing and promoting similar to the merit-based and hierarchical class pedagogy found in modern schools. That seems natural, doesn't it? One achievement begets the next in an easy-to-follow straight line of ever-growing accomplishments. That A plus B plus C plus D and so on equals the present. But not everyone would agree with this historical and methodological linearity. In particular, scientific philosopher and coiner of the term paradigm shift, Thomas S. Kuhn, who would tell you that history and discovery as a linear path is a load of BS. Chorus. Thomas Samuel Kuhn, that's K-U-H-N, okay, flip-turned the world upside down with his book The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, first published in 1962 which spurned a huge postmodern movement that painted a picture of the development of science quite unlike any that had gone before. Originally studying to be a physicist, Kuhn came up with the idea to study science history while in graduate school at Harvard during his time as a junior fellow in the Society of Fellows. It's like an incubator for smarty pantses at the beginning of their careers. As a junior fellow, 
Kuhn had, had much more freedom to study concepts and ideas more off the beaten path, such as the writings of continental philosophers like Alexander Coiré, who wrote about the effect of scientific discoveries on religion and philosophy, and Arthur O. Lovejoy, who studied and wrote about the history of ideas. In 1958, Kuhn was invited to spend a year at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences, and he noticed that many of the social scientists of different disciplines, like psychologists and sociologists, would vehemently disagree with one another about fundamental concepts and methods while studying the exact same data. Kuhn wondered why natural scientists, like those in physics, chemistry, and biology, didn't have the same discrepancies. Thus, he wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions to show why natural scientists should and do have similar discrepancies when faced with the same data. And the world would never be the same. Quoting fellow podcaster and historian Brad Harris from the podcast Context with Brad Harris, quote, Among young academics in particular, referencing Kuhn became a badge of intellectual enlightenment from the 1970s onward a signal that you had transcended the vulgar historical interpretations of the masses and have become a bona fide professional thinker who understood just how problematic terms like scientific progress and truth really were, unquote. Some suggest that, over time, Kuhn's theories became somewhat inverted and were used to say that truth doesn't exist. But that's not what Kuhn believed. And it's easy to fall down a postmodern deconstructionist rabbit hole while studying Kuhn. Another problem with studying Kuhn is that, in my opinion, he at times writes very vaguely uh, in the structure of scientific revolutions, and other times very densely, if you're not a scientist or science historian, that is, of which I am neither. The goal of this GASP's essay is to point out the key elements of Kuhn's philosophical concepts and to cement them into your brain by linking them to examples found within tap dance. When studying this kind of stuff, that's what works for me, and maybe it will work for you, too. Thomas Kuhn and 12-year-old me have one thing in common, that we both hated textbooks. It's clear that Kuhn hates textbooks with a fiery passion, but judge for yourself when hearing that, in the structure of scientific revolutions, Kuhn writes, quote, Inevitably, however, the aim of such books is persuasive and pedagogic. A concept of science drawn from them is no more likely to fit the enterprise that produced them than an image of a national culture drawn from a tourist brochure, end quote. Burn? <laughs> Kuhn also writes about textbook that, quote, this 200-page essay attempts to show that we have been misled by them in fundamental ways, end quote. Kuhn's problem with textbooks is that they present the evolution of scientific discovery in a linear timeline, with each achievement building upon the last, in a step-by-step -step kind of pattern. But that's not how Kuhn sees scientific discovery as actually happening. And he would argue that science, and by extension most disciplines, grow in a rhizomatic way, i.e. that discovery occurs unpredictably, different paths branching in all directions, some thriving and growing, and others breaking off and dying. To describe the evolution of discovery as a straight line, devoid of divergence, 
tycoon is disingenuous and flat-out wrong. A lie. These textbooks are written after a new paradigm is already established, but suggest that this new paradigm is where it's at, and that it's the be-all and end-all of the subject, ignoring <laughs> that the previous textbook made the same claim to fame, which the current textbook dismantles, but, but does not realize that it itself will one day succumb to the same exact fate. But that's not to say that textbooks are worthless. On the contrary, textbooks do a decent job of articulating what Kuhn terms as normal science. Normal science is basically just the day-to-day puzzle-solving research done within a paradigmatic model of understanding. By puzzle, I mean just that. You have a picture of what you're trying to figure out, and you conduct normal scientific research to chip away at the problem to discover pieces that you gradually fit together. In this regard, Kuhn admits, there is an aspect of linear progression to science. To me, normal science in tap dance is apparent in three ways. Normal practice, structured company rehearsal, and syllable-based instruction. I discovered a new method of normal practice through Jason Janis, famed tap dancer and co-owner of the Foundation House Dance Training Facility, located about 20 miles west of Detroit. Janice is known for his intense practice regiment, which I learned about during a car ride from O'Hare Airport as a volunteer during one of the Chicago Human Rhythm Project's annual tap dance festivals. I learned that Janice's theory of practice was to go in with a pre-planned and organized approach that focused on uh, shaping body, mind, and soul opposed to just winging it. <clears throat> Sorry. Janice's practice was strictly structured. He said to me that at the time, he would wake up super early and study footage of great tap dancers over breakfast, get to the studio around 7 a.m., do a flap load of push-ups combined with rudiments and two-minute cardio drills, then attempts his best to recreate the footage that he watched during his morning observance. Then he creates at least one original time step, then improvises for a period of time, then rehearses choreography. Maybe not necessarily in that order, but oof, that's a lot of practice. The only reason I can keep up at all with the dance company I am a part of right now, Mad Rhythms, is that I adopted for several years the Janus-style practice theory, and that uh, day-to-day grind is what one could consider normal science in regard to tap dance. Speaking of mad rhythms, the second example of normal science in tap dance is how our company rehearsals are structured. Every Sunday, at least, we get together from 2 to 3 p.m. for a warm-up improv jam, followed by a member teaching new choreography, then a technique building across the floor, and finally a run-through of all contemporary repertory pieces, and a closing full company meeting. Lastly, the third example of normal science and tap dance comes from the learning and practice from a graded syllabus. My own tap dance beginnings were to the tune of uh, the Al Gilbert method. One hand on the ballet bar, switch sides, right and left, gradual and literal step-by-step instruction produced via a voice and music from a 7-inch vinyl record played at 45 rotations per minute as my teacher, the late and great Paula Johnson corrected our technical shortcomings as we progressed through the course. Normal science, 
or normal practice and research are instrumental in realizing whatever goal it is that you have set for yourself or your company or your class or your laboratory. It's when you hit a roadblock, a brain fart, a dancer's block, either in practice, improvisation, or choreography, that normal practice utterly fails you. You've reached a point where something isn't working, but you're not quite sure why. It is at this moment that, according to Kuhn, an anomaly occurs. An anomaly is, quote, the recognition that nature has somehow violated the paradigm-induced expectations that govern normal science, unquote. One anomaly is no big deal. You hit a snag in your research, or you fail trying that three-beat, I don't know, super shuffle or flip, or whatever name you call it. But then, someone can do a four-beat whatever. And then it's in choreography in the group that you were a part of. And then someone does a whole festival class on it. Now your inability to produce one of that step turns into, uh, from one anomaly, into several. And all of a sudden, you are getting left behind. Now, you're in a crisis. That's what crisis is to Kuhn, when the anomalies become so overarching and apparent that you can no longer do normal science. As you collect and assemble your puzzle pieces, or data gained from conducting normal scientific research, you may occasionally get an off piece, one that doesn't exactly fit with the other pieces. One off puzzle piece can sometimes be remodeled to fit, or simply discarded as error, or set aside for later analysis. But what happens when the anomalies start to pile up and outnumber the normal pieces? Well, you become stuck within the paradigm and can progress no further. Since all of your puzzle pieces not only don't fit with each other, but begin to form a completely different picture than what you anticipated the puzzle image to look like in the first place. A crisis indeed! At this point, you have no other choice but to either chuck the whole puzzle in the garbage, as I have done with many a puzzle, or begin the process that Kuhn calls extraordinary science. What if you assembled a puzzle not just flat and horizontal, but flat and vertical, or built in three dimensions, or put together underwater, I don't know. More than likely, you will have to assemble the puzzle using methods that do not lend themselves to simile, because nothing like it exists yet. A quick example of a crisis of paradigm was the experience that Brenda Buffalino had while putting together her American Tap Dance Orchestra, as she writes about in her 2004 autobiography syllabus hybrid, uh, titled Tapping the Source. Buffalino writes that pre-Tap Dance Renaissance, so pre-early like 1980s, late 1970s, Tap Dance was mainly an individualist art form, and that, quote, the whole idea of complex choreography for more than four dancers was unheard of, end quote. So Buffalino had to train up the dancers to be musicians, ensemble members, and soloists, chuck out all the women's high-heel tap shoes, and created choreography that, in uh, a vast postmodern way, deconstructed the concept of precision dancing by making each member not responsible for a whole work, but by breaking down their sections as if they were an instrument in an orchestra. With taps being divided up into horn sections and rhythm sections, set to original range arrangements of jazz standards played always by live musicians. 
According to Buffalino, quote, it took three companies and then years before that visualization finally actualized in the American Tap Dance Orchestra, end quote. The new picture of tap dance that she had in her head was filled with too many anomalies to fit with the current tap dance paradigm. So during a 10-year crisis phase, she conducted extraordinary tap dance research and practice to achieve a new paradigm, the expanded tap dance company model as we know it today. For me, taking a Sam Weber tap class fits this model. Weber's technique, derived in part from what works for his own body, plus the training he received from his teachers, particularly Stanley Kahn and his school formerly in San Francisco, and Weber's experience in other forms of dance, all these influences make his technique so different from, from most, at least in my experience. Weber's technique is at times boggling to the mind and betrays the senses. If I can, I will hop into Weber's beginner class, because even though the musicality and rudiments are simpler, the kinesthetic paradigm of Weber's technique is so alien to my concept of normal tap dance movement that even a beginner-level class brings me much frustration and immense elation. Weber's explanation of a leg relaxed and barely lifted, then tightly extended to maximum, causing the foot to wiggle a little bit, totally changed my life as I had all but surrendered to the idea that I was a fool to think that I could ever produce any form of a nerve tap. You know, that step where the toe vigorously taps the floor like a race car piston. Whack, 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 whack. But after class with Weber in the early 2000s, boom! I'm still slower at nerve taps than most people, but at least I can do them at all. And I was left wondering why nobody had ever explained it like that to me before. It seems so obvious now, like turning on a light bulb in a dark closet, only to discover that there's an entire room around you. In my tap dance journey, this was perhaps my first time experiencing a change in my own gestalt. Kuhn is extremely influenced by gestalt psychology, a school of psychology that emerged in Germany and Austria in the early 20th century that links a person's life experiences, environment, culture, influences, everything that makes them them with how they perceive and interpret the world and even themselves. As Kuhn puts it, quote, Therefore, at times of revolution, when the normal scientific tradition changes, the scientist's perception of his environment must be re-educated. In some familiar situations, he must learn to see a new gestalt. After he has done so, the world of his research will seem, here and there, incommensurable with the one he had inhabited before. That is another reason why schools guided by different paradigms are always slightly at cross-purposes, end quote. By incommensurable, Kuhn means that there is no common language with which coherent communication between different schools may occur. One of the most famous Gestalt demonstrations was performed by two cognitive scientists, Jerome Bruner and Leo Postman, in 1949, where they showed people playing cards from a deck, but had switched the color and suit of a few of them, including a black four of hearts and a red six of spades, and then recorded how long it took people to identify the anomalous trick cards. Apparently, people didn't have as easy a time as you would think, and a variety of reactions were recorded. 
If people had such a difficult time with a few playing cards, imagine the cognitive discrepancies that a person faces when confronted with something more difficult, like advanced scientific research, or something truly challenging, like tap dance. Kuhn identifies this feeling of status quo to that of a eureka moment when he writes, quote, Normal science ultimately leads only to the recognition of anomalies and to crisis. And these are terminated not by deliberation and interpretation, but by a relatively sudden and unstructured event like this gestalt switch. Scientists then often speak of the scales falling from their eyes, or of the lightning flash that inundates a previously obscure puzzle, enabling its components to be seen in a new way that for the first time permits its solution, end quote. And that is exactly how I felt after being exposed to the paradigm that is Sam Weber's personal kinesthetic technique. Unfortunately, some people are so off, uh, put off by a chaotic shift in perception that they simply refuse to change their gestalt. Personally, I think that everyone should take as many Sam Weber classes as possible because he supplies answers that you didn't know needed answering and to questions that you didn't even know that you had to ask. But there is always someone who drops the cop-out phrase. That just doesn't work for my body. After trying only one or a handful of attempts at Weber's technique, well, how do you know that? Is one weekend at a festival, or even once per year, enough to make up your mind so concretely? Well, the answer is no. And this kind of closed-mindedness, to me, is a real detriment to the technical progress of many tap dancers. Unfortunately, scientists are also prone to this revulsion to a sudden shift in gestalt. It's never easy to admit that you may have been looking at things all wrong. And this can explain why some experts, even ones with amazing credentials, can interpret the same data in different ways due to their environment in which they were raised, who their teachers were, where they were trained, and yes, their personal politics and religious affiliation. Kuhn notes that, quote, almost always the men who achieve these fundamental inventions of a new paradigm have been either very young or very new to the field whose paradigm they change. And perhaps that point need not have been made explicit. For obviously, these are the men who, being little committed by prior practice to the traditional rules of normal science, are particularly likely to see that those rules no longer define a playable game and to conceive another set that can replace them, end quote. In other words, the older scientists have a more difficult time of letting go of their worldview, which they have held on to for most of their lives, than a young or new scientist who is only beginning to develop theirs. We should all be very familiar with this concept in art, like the pioneering bebop jazz musicians who once had to defend their out-there sound, but who now scoff and say that players of any kind of modern jazz fusion have, quote, turned jazz into the garbage dump, end quote. Or like how some older tap dancers pro proclaim that they prefer the 1930s aesthetic of Fred Astaire over the hunched-over and hyper-musical style of tap from the 1990s only for those tap dancers of the 90s to deny legitimacy to a more contemporary 21st century style of tap dance that includes angular body shapes and movement-based floor work. Like how the needle of politically 
Progressive liberals remain static as the world continues to be progressive, thus turning them into conservative liberals. So too do liberal artists who are unable to shift their gestalt transform into conservative artists. Even that last quote by Kuhn only mentions the men of science, whereas now we would be more inclusive and perhaps not single out one gender when not writing about a specific person or group. So even Kuhn himself is not beyond a personal gestalt in his writing. By being open to shifting my gestalt and accepting and incorporating Sam Weber's unique paradigm of technique, I was able to do extraordinary practice, exploring the unknown, delving into new territory. And that resulted in a leap of progress of my own abilities, taking me out of a a crisis state and moving me within a new paradigm where I am now able to once again conduct Jason Janis-style normal practice, but at a higher level. According to Kuhn, this is the circular nature of scientific discovery. Normal to crisis, to extraordinary, to new paradigm. Normal to crisis, to extraordinary, to new paradigm. Normal to crisis. You get the idea. And you can start to see how this cyclical concept can be applied to the history of, of... Well, almost anything. On one hand, tap history is ripe with new discoveries since so much has been hidden. And, on the other hand, infuriating because so much has been lost. I think a good comparison regarding perspectives of Gestalt on tap history is through the various authors and practitioners who become authorities of communicating the origin of tap dance. In an interview that I conducted with Brian Siebert, author of What the Eye Hears, he confirmed my theory that he began his origin story of tap with Africa mentioned first, because even in other books that claim at least an equal contribution among the cultures that created tap dance, those books rarely begin their histories with Africa. A statistical anomaly right there. Although Siebert does remain adamant in his view that tap is not a monocultural product. Other notable authors and tap dancers have expressed themselves more inexorably than Siebert. Dancer and choreographer Danny Daniels maintained that tap dance is essentially Irish, while other authors claim that tap dance is just English clog but sped up. And of course, there is the taprocentric view presented by noise funk that leaves the white European influence out of the conversation altogether. Other tap historians even romanticize the transatlantic slave voyage, writing... Quote, what a marvelous moment for all, end quote, regarding the process where enslaved Africans, many in chains, were danced on the top deck for exercise and may have been witness to some European styles of dance from the European crew members. Another author will vehemently plant their flag in the idea that Irish-African dance fusion catalyzed on the Caribbean islands of Montserrat and Trinidad. While none of these people are 100% correct, it is indeed an historian's duty to interpret the results of their research. And this interpretation is the representation of their own personal gestalt. Some, like Siebert, a relatively younger author, are happy to admit that they do not have all the answers, while others, like a more mature historian, or scientist for that matter, are less than enthusiastic when their worldview is challenged. This is why we are stuck in this tug-of-war regarding who gets credit for tap dance, 
and only by a change of ego or the introduction of new data or both can we move into a new paradigm regarding the roots of tap dance history. Another comparison lies within the creation and use of the tap dance syllabus and the psychologies of the people who use them, henceforth known as syllabusters. It's been pointed out to me that by combining every possible combination of steps, there are literally thousands of potential combinations and that a shared lexicon can only aid in eliminating the incommensurability between tap dance students who seek to take classes from different teachers, but may be deterred from doing so if they find those teachers' different descriptors of steps difficult and confusing. And that makes a lot of sense, but as in science, different paradigmatic groups of syllabusters gain dominance and institutionalize their own syllabus and prepare it for mass consumption, making it the official language of a particular studio or region, or country, or even the entire world, in the attempt to normalize a common language for the ease of cross-communication. However, this systemic institutionalization of form and function by the syllabusters often creates the same problem that they were attempting to fix in the first place, and students of a particular school find themselves becoming incommensurable with students of another school. I agree that a shared language aids in the commensurability between tap dancers, but, as with language in general, a universal lexicon is all but impossible. Furthermore, even if we could agree on a shared universal tap lexicon, what happens when the paradigm shifts yet again, as Kuhn has shown that it absolutely will? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Crisis. Confusion. Some people straight up refusing to accept the new paradigm, causing massive rifts within the tap dance community. For a gasps episode in progress, I went through over a dozen tap dance syllabi, and only a few included sections on improvisation. And that, in my opinion, is a huge detrimental crutch to the student. Regardless of any time period, why hamstring your student and teachers in such a way? I could cry tears into my tea, soggying my biscuits, just thinking about it. Are these institutionalized and normative syllabi, which Kuhn says are guaranteed to become outdated and obsolete, the only way to learn how to tap dance? No, of course not. Many teachers have created their own progressive and less rigid tap education programs, like Tommy Sutton's Tapping with Tommy. That produced many great tap dancers out of the Mayfair School here in Chicago. But although I consider Tapping with Tommy a superior example of the style, it still works within the established syllabuster paradigm. As far as a revolutionary paradigm shift, I think I have found one better. There is indeed a school that has constructed an opposing and, in nearly every way imaginable, an opposite paradigm compared to those of the syllabuster denominations. I'm not even sure of the, the current state of this school, to be honest, or if classes are still being held, or, or how they were being held. Well, but that's besides the point. The point is that this school is extremely clear about the model and framework under which it operates. So if you're a student, please let me know how it is going, or if it is going. 
I guess to do that, you have to know what I'm talking about. Well, the school I am speaking about is the Hoofers Club, capital H-F-R-C and L. The Hoofers Club is part of Savion Glover's School of Dance, located in Newark, New Jersey, in the former space known as the Newark Community School for the Arts. I will now read the introduction page near verbatim, because not only does it present a very clear case for an opposing paradigm and an example of revolutionary tap dance practice and extraordinary tap dance research, but it's super fun to read, too. So, uh, I quote from the website. In big, bold, underlined letters, our doors are open to those students who want to know and learn the history of tap. If you want to learn the fancy steps, please find a different studio to take lessons at. We only want students who are interested in learning about the what's and how's of tap. Our classes are open to students of any age, as long as they can create meaning and listen to directions. Quote, We hope to educate the youth and adults. We hope to use the education of the dance, not making people move fast within their dance, allowing them more history and education about dancers and the dance itself. We highlight the lives of Jimmy Slide, Gregory Hines, Bojangles, all these great hoofers who have gone unsung and lack recognition in our history. Again, we don't teach fancy steps. It's more of a holistic approach to the form. End quote by founder Savion Glover. The about page continues. For your first year or two in our studio, you are required to bring with you to class a pen and pad of paper. You will probably not be dancing for your first few years of dance here because we focus on creating deeper meaning within our students. We know that you cannot just put tap shoes on and appreciate the sounds you are able to make with them. We will create that deeper understanding within each of our students, which will in turn make them better hoofers. Our main focus for the first few years of dance is a discussion-based seminar where students can create an understanding of why this dance is so important and why we should be advocating for dance to be a part of our culture and school system. Dance needs these advocates more than they need good tap dancers. It is awesome if you can tap dance well, but it is a phenomenal feeling if you can understand the creation of those steps and how they changed history. Please be aware we are not looking for perfect dancers. We want inspired dancers. We want children who maybe aren't the best dancers, but have the ability to create meaning in the steps and are able to feel the rhythm. We need students who are brilliant in more ways than one. We look to promote that genius in all of our students. Because we are located in Newark, New Jersey, we frequently take trips into Manhattan to see shows which we believe will help art education in any way. Unfortunately, these are not usually Broadway productions. The shows that are on Broadway today, although enjoyable, are mainstream and not really productions with real performers. <laughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> As... <laughs> Listen, as a school, we do support Broadway, 
but we are very picky about the shows we will bring our students to. We are more likely to bring you to an underground dance performance, art gallery, studio opening, or master class at another company, such as Broadway Dance Center. But please do not expect free trips to see The Little Mermaid, as this will never happen as part of our studio's learning environment. <laughs> like I said, fun to read. You didn't see The Little Mermaid <laughs> being thrown at you, did you? But don't take my words for it. Here's the director and founder of Savion Glover's School of Dance and the Hoofers Club, Savion Glover, in an interview with the Rhythm Addict YouTube channel's Amato Watson, who was wearing a very dated Washington Redskins cap while sitting beside Glover, himself dressed in a Gregory Hines t-shirt in front of a brick wall inside the actual New Jersey studio with pictures of Jimmy Slide and Lon Chaney resting on the floor behind him. So um, this building that we're in now is the Hofers Club. This is my school, my office, and um, we, we um, our doors are open to, um, well, not anybody. <laughs> Let me slow down a little bit. Our doors are open to those students who uh, want to know the history and want to learn the history. If you want to get like some fancy steps and stuff like that, we can't help you. <laughs> we don't do that here. Um, you know, and, and, and here you, you, it's, 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 a, it's a protocol to come with pins and pads in your mind versus tap shoes. You don't even need tap shoes for the first year or two. You know, we're, we're basically, there's basically discussions and um, just getting people to understand why they want to tap dance. Um, because what we push for um, is what we need in the art, and that's we need maybe less tap dancers and more people pushing the pin. We need more writers. We need more um, um, uh, people who would sort of advocate for the dance. And um, that's what we do. You know, a lot of times we find, excuse me, we find, um, you know, we'll find somebody who comes and they're really not, they're just not good. Excuse me, they're not a good tap dancer, but they're brilliant. Their mind, they're, they're brilliant. Maybe they can do something else for the dance. Um, a lot of, a lot of times you have uh, people who want to dance. Again, they're listening to their heart, but their mind is telling them, "Man, you, you, you're, you're an architect. We need you to be building the, 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 the home for the dancers when they retire. We need you to be uh, out there talking to the, to the." producers to say, no, these are the shows we need to put up on Broadway. We need people uh, in, the, in, the, in the front line, not always on the stage. So we also um, look to promote that genius in one also. Yeah. And what's uh, your age group here? Any age, you know, as long as you can listen to mommy or daddy, as long as you understand, don't do this. <laughs> Please go ahead as long as you can, you know. We take them any any age. Any age. We've we've took you know, we've taken like um 
like I said, if, if I'm not here, then it doesn't go on. So there's no class or anything like that. So I'm traveling a lot and doing things like that. So we kind of took this year off. Um, uh, but I think I'm going to um, sort of, you know, dedicate more time uh, and open, open the doors up to even more people who would want to come um, and share um, with us. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Glover goes even more in-depth regarding his approach to teaching, especially with children, in a more recent interview from April of 2021 with John Schreiber, president and CEO of the nonprofit arts and education presenting organization, NJPEC, as part of a recent production of the Tap Dance Kid that Glover directed for the organization. By the time it gets to me now being responsible for teaching I have to understand what this tool now, what this dance is for me, and then express it to the children or the thinker. I have to allow them to know what it could be for them. Now, it, it, it's, it's water for me. It's, I can make it rain outside. I can make it snow. I can make you cry with this sound. I can make you pray. I can, I, can, I can make you do anything because I understand what this dance is for me and I know how to use it. And I, that's the option. You can either use the dance to tap dance or you can use the, the dance to express yourself. Mm -hmm. I am a believer that there is a difference yeah. between the two. You right. can express yourself through an instrument or you can play the instrument. You can play what the instrument have to, has to offer. It's, it's, it's a quote in the, in, the, in the government, some do for your country, not, not what you do for your country, but what, you, what your country does for you or something, something like that. There's something like that that, that reminds us to <laughs> don't let the instrument play you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, 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 yeah. you, you, you play it, and and um, yeah, that becomes your, that's your voice. You turn it into you. It's you. you. I'm, I'm not a dancer. I'm me. I'm expressing myself through this sound that's coming out. You know what I mean? What I've observed um, of you as a, as a teacher is that you provide your students with a confidence uh, and a belief in them that some of the kids don't even have in themselves when they show up. Uh, a young woman, one of your kids in, in, in an NJPAC program that you did said to me, I honestly didn't believe in myself, but after I spent time with Savion, I realized that he believed in me so I could believe in myself and it was just a beautiful revelation by a kid and you you did that see and i know you've done that a zillion times with kids yeah but with everybody we, I, I i believe you don't I, I don't know what i can do you have to show me my my abilities <laughs> otherwise somebody else has told me that i can't yeah. i'm not even allowed to even try i don't yeah. know what that is when especially when it comes to theater or if we're talking about acting or expressing yourself. Yeah. Everybody is fabulous at expressing themselves. So when it's about allowing the children to 
express themselves and there's no bar saying you're good, you're not good, you're great, you're fabulous. Nobody in here is of the such. We're just expressing ourselves. So there is no, so at that, at that point, yes, the child can sing circles around Sade. Now I can't think of anything as anti-syllabuster as the phrase, you will probably not be dancing for your first few years of dance. And we are not looking for perfect dancers. When, if you peruse the ISTD syllabus, that's literally the only objective to create dancers proficient in that one style of tap dance. I feel like Thomas Kuhn would take great delight in this shift of a paradigm that the Hoofers Club presents. A relatively young dancer inviting people to experience crisis and perform revolutionary tap practice. Not to mention it presents a branching of tap dance history by teaching you about different figures and histories in the dance, not just one linear progression of single individuals. I hope that everyone who listened to this episode of the GASPS podcast has a decent understanding of what Thomas Kuhn's monumental work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, is all about. To recap, normal research leads to an aggregate of anomalies that build up to form a crisis that challenges the accepted model of thought, also called a paradigm. And after a period, period of extraordinary and revolutionary research, a new paradigm is discovered, like the Earth changing from the center of the universe to not. I hope that my tap dance examples has made this concept easier to grasp and internalize. But the thing that is really important, the true gift of this episode, now you can use the word paradigm in a sentence and not only sound smart, but actually be smart. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Thank you for listening. Please consider joining our Patreon page for additional content and check out our Guffadaff Facebook page for riveting conversations. The only Facebook page on, on tap dance that I know of at this time that only allows original content and thought-provoking shares. In the meantime, stay tuned for our Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. On episode 51 of the Tap Love Tour, the original Tap Dance Podfather, Travis Knights, interviews legendary jazz pianist and educator Dr. Barry Harris as part of Knight's search for what the dance is. Dr. Harris talks about the importance of knowing and memorizing songs or standards, how to use this knowledge, and how impressed he was when he encountered another doctor of art and culture, tap dancer Jimmy Slide, who he was surprised possessed the same encyclopedic knowledge of, of jazz standards, a consummate professional. On episode 89 of Lost in the Shuffle, Host Hilary Marie offers insightful advice on incorporating jazz music into your tap class. I always struggled with this, and I swear, if this podcast had come out a decade or two uh, earlier, I would have been a world-class and, and, and highly sought-after teacher instead of, well, anyways, give it a listen and join the iTap online community today. On episode 48 of the Have Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, 
Host Rick Oslin discusses how nice it feels to vote early. So listen to this episode before every election, especially the local ones, uh, to get you motivated. You, you know those local ones are the real important ones. Osland also talks about his adventures in street performing, wonders about how small of a surface can you tap dance on, and even includes an account of a very well-known tap dancer who, legend has it, dances on a kitchen cutting board. Also, Osland gives you the inside scoop on some of his and his brother Andy Osland's album of music for tap dance titled Bucket Drummin' Volume 1, and how he was inspired by none other then executive producer of the Gasps podcast, Brill Barrett, on how to dance and take walks while listening to the music in your own head. On episode two of the Real Talk Tap Talks, host Nico Rubio continues his interview about the life and times of amazing tap dancer and one of my mentors, you know, but don't judge him based on that. Martin Trey Dumas III. Trey fills in the gaps about his transition into a mature, not old, tap dancer, and discusses words of wisdom he received from Dr. Jimmy Slide, and provides notes on his former company, Just Listen. The episode begins with Trey's genius choreography, and I really don't say that lightly, to What Time Is It? A musical work by his late father and uh, his father's band, Rasputin Stash. Rasputin? Stash Rasputin's... Anyways. And goes into detail on his conception and creation of the now classic work. To know Trey is to love Trey. And after you listen to this episode of TRTTT, you'll know and love him even more. And that's all of them. I'll catch you next time on the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast. I want to see Bill Robin's son versus James Bond. What's a man with a laser watch? What's a man with a golden gun? Can't you see? All his history is killing me. My left foot's strong and my right foot's fast. I know it's hard to grasp. Gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying art All right, I think they're gone. All right, as as the the as the the real listeners know, right? People get fooled like on those old albums and and tapes where they do a hidden track at the end. So, right, so all the squares have now left. And if you had left before, you can unsquareify yourself by by sticking around uh, from now on. So this is the bonus section. The structure of scientific revolutions was actually the first philosophy book that I read to completion even though I didn't understand most of it uh, the first time through. And the reason I had to read it, because of that dang Simpsons episode, that a paradigm was used by stupid people to sound smart, always stuck with me. So when I heard mention of the origin of the term uh, as being discoverable, I had to figure out what the Simpsons was referencing. Just goes to show you that while I do enjoy the occasional new episode of The Simpsons, now and again, the first six or seven seasons are exceptional, witty, and worth a revisit. The first interview I played, uh, which is part of part five of six, is one of my favorite interviews with Glover of all time. The interviewer, Watson, 
Uh, seems like a nice guy, although a little wet behind the ears as an interviewer, which I can relate to if you watch my interview with Siebert. But he asked Savion every softball vanilla question that I feel like he would hate to answer. Where's your favorite place to tap dance? What advice do you have for aspiring tap dancers? Glover's answer is, don't do it. <laughs> Tell us about your show, blah, blah, blah. I mean, if you do any research on Glover, you know that he is a first-class pessimist, which I absolutely love about him, and I commend him for maintaining his composure during this interview. Thank you to our two Patreon members, Pamela Hetherington and Liz Rancourt-Smith. At any time I feel like not picking up a book or not talking to someone or not visiting the library or visiting a location or not scouring the YouTubes, well, I think of Liz and Pamela. And then I get the work done because they've made it clear they're counting on me. So thank you very much.